Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. Violinist Aislinn Noski leading the Handel and Haydn Society in a live performance of Vivaldi's Four Seasons that took place at Symphony Hall in Boston in January 2012. In the previous episode, Aislinn discussed her love for Vivaldi, and I wanted to know more about her experience while performing, as well as specific aspects of her approach to this music. Aislinn joined me by phone from her home. You last performed these concertos with H&H in 2012. I was really looking forward to hearing them again and to see what, if anything, has changed in your approach to Vivaldi and these pieces in particular over the last eight years. Yeah, there's been a particular poignancy for me in the cancellation of this particular concert set at H&H. I think in some ways I'm a very different person and player than I was all those years ago. And in some ways I'm exactly the same. Uh, for sure my hair is longer now. <laughs> Thank you, uh, <laughs> pandemic. But no, um, you know, <clears throat> when we last played these together at Symphony Hall, I was going through a really strange and difficult time. There was a confluence of really stressful factors in my life that came together and caused me to be really burnt out right around the time of these performances. And shortly after those four seasons, I actually ended up having a really intense experience dealing with performance anxiety, which I had never actually dealt with in my career up until that point. Now, keep in mind that I just said dealt with. I didn't say that I'd never experienced it because actually I think I had been experiencing performance anxiety before that, but I was in denial like any um, young adult. And I remember that the four seasons, I had a fantastic time performing them, but I had much more anxiety around performing than I had before. It didn't seem entirely related to the four seasons themselves. And a few months later, I ended up really having more and more uh, symptoms of, of anxiety while performing. So things like getting a little dizzy, 
uh, shortness of breath, and uh, not playing to the best of my abilities. I went to speak to some professionals about it and was diagnosed with stage fright. <laughs> At which point, I almost demanded my money back. <laughs> I was so disgusted that someone would tell me I had stage fright. As a professional, I thought, you know, give me a break. I'm not scared of performing. I, I do it all the time. And, well, the thing is, they were right. Even though all of those things in my life were true, I was indeed a professional violinist, and I was very successful in some regards, it turns out that I was having a lot of stage fright. And I feel that it was a gift that this started to happen around the time I played Four Seasons at H&H &H because I have such a vivid memory of how I felt then. I have been studying and learning lots of coping techniques. And I'm happy to say that through that, I've become a much better performer. And yet I'm also still on a particular journey that's my own that is always, I think, going to be slightly intertwined with these wonderful Four Seasons. So you know, lucky me that they keep coming up in my life. You mentioned that training, you mentioned coping techniques that have helped you on this journey. Can you share one or two of these? I have a couple of coping mechanisms that I use to help me get through the, the worst of the anxieties, you know, and, and it's a bit surprising to me that they're actually really not very complicated or very sophisticated. <laughs> a major breakthrough for me in dealing with my performance anxiety was figuring out that a lot of the symptoms I was experiencing, which were dizziness and feeling lightheaded, those were being caused by not enough oxygen in my brain. And so the very simple idea of controlling and working with my own breath has been something that has really taken my ability to control those things to the next level. You know, for so many years, I think I, I kept hearing great musicians say, well, you have to make sure you breathe. You have to make sure you breathe. And I think to myself, yeah, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, of course I'm breathing. I'm standing upright and I'm awake and I'm not falling over, so I'm breathing. But the fact is that I wasn't breathing the most helpful way that I needed to for my body to function when I was in a highly excited state of performing. So I'm always somehow now in a way that I wasn't before aware of my breathing. And I think my own personal issue with that has been that, you know, I, I get so caught up in the excitement of the music I'm playing that I've mentioned again on a very basic fundamental level to make sure that I'm breathing enough to support my body getting through all of the performing. And it's made a huge difference to me. I've also been really surprised that you know, when I started this journey of dealing with my own anxieties around performing, I had assumed that my goal would be to stop feeling that anxiety. But in fact, I no longer have that goal. It's a little bit like the performance anxiety has been folded into the larger part of my personality that loves to perform. And something I remind myself of all the time is that the fact that performing is so important to me and so exciting that it should be something that's risky and possibly anxiety causing. But now that I have tools to deal with those, that I can use that excitement and energy that flows through me as a positive in my performing rather than trying to deny it or ignore it or just have it not happen. I haven't gotten rid of that anxiety, and I think it actually helps me perform at a higher level now. Dealing with this, talking about it, and continuing to perform requires a certain level of courage, as does leading an ensemble, I, I presume. You occupy a position of leadership at Handel and Haydn. It's not called concertmaster for nothing. Has that been impacted by this journey to control performance anxiety? Yeah, I think that the way that I do my job has changed in terms of dealing with my performance anxiety. I think, if anything, I've probably gotten a little bit better at certain aspects of the concert mastering job. I think that, you know, coming to the realization that I was struggling with my stage fright was very humbling for me. 
And I think that it was important for me as an artist to feel that humility, to be reminded that, you know, there's always something that I can be working on. And I think that the experience of working through this kind of anxiety has made me more able to be helpful to people who might be going through something similar. And it's made me more able to withstand stressful environments. And uh, generally, I think my level of playing has gotten a little bit higher overall because of all of the training that I've been doing to try to overcome these anxieties. Vivaldi does something unusual. This is not the first instance of what we would call pictorial music, music that describes a scene. There are earlier examples, composers you and I love, like Bieber, who wrote what's known as the representative sonata, all sorts of animal sounds. There's a great piece by a Farina, Capriccio Stravagante, that has various effects meant to evoke imagery. But Vivaldi does something unusual in that he composed sonnets, little poems, to go with specific places in the music, which then explain what the music is trying to describe. The sonnets are going to be up on the podcast page. Our listeners can have a look at them. Do you think that he takes pictorialism anywhere where it hadn't been before? I think that he probably does take the pictorialism to another level. I am not expert enough in the music of the 18th century to say for sure that no one else had done it, but I suspect if they had, someone smarter than me would have pointed it out to us. (laughs) Uh, Just because these pieces are so famous, I think that someone would have called us on it. I think Vivaldi takes it to the next level in the effectiveness with which he illustrates the sonnet text. It's hard not to notice that there's a a, a violist pretending to be a barking dog in the slow movement of spring. Mm ¶¶ 
it's so evocative. I guess something in Vivaldi, he had such a direct means of expression. Like he, I know that, well, you know, I actually learned from you guys that Vivaldi loved writing operas and he really wanted to be a successful opera composer. That's where the money was. Right. That's where the money was. And in Venice, opera was the most popular form of entertainment, like by far, probably even more than gambling, but that's hard to prove. But I mean, it was just, you know, the superstars of their time were, were opera composers and performers. And he walked in that world for sure. And I think that his writing for theater, his theatrical sense that he was trying to put into his operas, that comes out in these four seasons, in these depictions, they really take the pictorialism up a notch, which is one of the features that makes these concertos so famous, with no doubt. He actually died while producing an opera in Vienna, not in Venice, and then buried in a an unmarked grave over which now stands a university. So he lived out his dream. Yeah, I've I've tried to connect Vivaldi to H and H by noting to people that Haydn was a student in Vienna at the what was it St. Stephen's? Is that the cathedral? Mm-hmm. And that that's where Vivaldi's funeral would have been. But I think somebody disproved that. I think someone actually did the research and we can't actually put Haydn in that room, but so close. We can dream. (laughs) We can dream, yeah. How important are these sonnets to your interpretation? I do consider the sonnets. I don't speak Italian at all. And so I only experience the sonnets in translation. And my friends who are native Italian speakers tell me the sonnets are not the greatest level of poetry, (laughs) which actually makes me wonder if they might have been written by Vivaldi himself. That's maybe one thing for the listeners to note that we don't know for sure who wrote them and whether it was Vivaldi. One of my friends who's Italian says, ah, the poetry is not that great. And I wonder if possibly it might have been Vivaldi, which is so cute to imagine. So, yeah, I do consider them because it's, you know, he's, he asks to portray a certain kind of, there's different kinds of wind, for example. You know, there's like the freezing cold Arctic wind. The wind he doesn't use the word Arctic, but winter wind. And then in the, in the concerto summer, there's the hot wind and it, you know, the zephyr. And like, you need to know that, are you, am I trying to play a hot wind or am I trying to play the Arctic wind? I mean, this is thinking about it leads me to more creative options. So it sounds like the specificity of the poetry is not limiting to you, but liberating for you, even though you've played this music so many times. Yes, because he indicates so clearly that he's looking for some effects in the music. I feel that that gives me license to really push the envelope in terms of, frankly, making funny slash interesting slash entertaining noises. And one thing about playing 18th century music is that I know that I do take a lot of license in in interpreting Vivaldi. It's a well-researched license, but it's licensed nonetheless. You know, it's very possible that I'm completely wrong about all of this, but it's also, to me anyway, wonderful that I'll I'll never know, at least not until it's too late. (laughs) You mentioned freedom and license that one can take. What is the place of improvisation or ornamentation, rhythmic freedom that you might have in this music? Well, from looking at different kinds of sources from the 18th century, we know that it was expected of the performers to add uh, ornamentation to the music almost all of the time. I think it was expected that a, a performer would add their own personality through adding, usually, more notes. Embellishment, it's 
uh, a way to put your own personal spin on something. It's it's in that sense the 18th century approach is much more akin to jazz than it is to the traditional 19th century symphonic experience of music that we, we've come to love and which has its own wonderful benefits. But there's this making up your ornaments on the spot expectation in playing 18th century music, and especially Vivaldi, that is really exciting. Some of Vivaldi's own cadenzas, so things that he would insert into concertos and performance, some of them were transcribed by students or by him himself for, for his students to learn. Those have been passed down. Some of them survive. And so we can see in those cadenzas what kinds of ornaments Vivaldi himself liked. And a good friend of mine who plays the flute, she says, you know, I mean, Vivaldi, it's like he's just a kid who sat in his room practicing arpeggios all day. Uh, he loves to play in his own cadenzas. He plays broken arpeggios up and down the instrument on a regular, like it, it must have just been really easy for him to do that. And I find that totally fascinating. Anyway, I myself try not to rely so much on triads, but I do my own version of, of ornaments in the Four Seasons, and it's fun. And I have some that I do the same each time, but I also have some moments in the piece where I extemporize and I make up something on the spot. And I should mention, you try this regularly in places like Symphony Hall, which seats 2,600 people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you got to <laughs> you gotta live life on the edge. Exactly. I mean... <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Our listeners may not know that in addition to perfecting the control over your instrument, that in our field, historically informed performance, there's also a good deal of study that one undertakes to understand the world the composer lived in. You mentioned 18th century sources that illustrate what are now some of your beliefs about Vivaldi. Can you give some examples of what these sources are, where you find them, etc.? Yeah, it's true. Uh, we do spend some time looking at sources from the 18th century. And in the case of Vivaldi, there's quite a bit of evidence from the records of the Hospital de la Pieta, where he worked for a lot of his life, uh, you know, letters back and forth between him, essentially, and his management about his job. And you can read those in, you know, books about Vivaldi, and you can get a little bit of a sense, at least, of his personality, I believe. It's quite formalized language, but you can tell that the quality of his work was very important to him. Other sources that I've consulted specifically about the Four Seasons are the main source that we use to perform the piece is the original published edition that was published in Amsterdam. I can't remember the exact year, but it was by a publisher, Lefein. And I think you've probably got part of it in, in the notes accompanying this podcast, mm -hmm. but it's, it's very beautiful to look at. Anyway, so that's the, the, the way that I traditionally have formed these pieces is from that 18th century edition. So that's, that's a type of source. 
there's a second set of manuscript parts that survived from the 18th century of these these concertos. They're not in Vivaldi's hands, but they're in a copyist from Vivaldi's circle. And those parts were in a private library, and eventually they made their way to a library in Manchester, where they are now on the shelves. And I got in touch with one of the librarians of Manchester. I think it's the Public Library of Manchester, in fact. And I asked them if I could get a copy of those 18th century parts that were clearly written out. They seem to have been written out for performance. So I had the librarian from Manchester send me, um, at the time actually it was a microfiche, which was kind of <laughs> dinosaur technology now. <laughs> he sent me a roll of, uh, of, of these, these manuscript parts. And, and the idea in my mind was that even though it wasn't in Vivaldi's handwriting himself, it was probably in one of someone in his circle's handwriting. And so I wanted to see if there were any differences in those parts between that and what I would normally have performed. And there were actually a few subtle rhythmical changes and a few scoring differences, which I found really interesting. That was a fun fun goose chase to go on. Yeah. Speaking of goose chase, the image I get when you talk about sources is something out of Indiana Jones, you know, entering some ancient monastery or dusty library and finding a manuscript under a floor tile. It's not quite that, but still not readily available. You have to seek out where these things are housed and ask for copies. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, it certainly can be. You know, it's not usually as dramatic as Indiana Jones, but occasionally it is. A friend of mine did an edition of Pergolesi, Sabat Mater, and she essentially snuck into a content to get a, a record of it and snuck out again. <laughs> it sounded very cloak and dagger in the middle of the night, wow. <laughs> but I've never gone to that extreme. I thought the most extreme story I had known was of one of our mutual friends and colleagues who recorded a CD of Bolivian Baroque music and literally had to go into the jungle, into a an abandoned church where there was a chest of manuscripts and record in the church, which involved the record label bringing generators and recording equipment <laughs> through the jungle. Pretty dramatic. <laughs> but that Pergolesi story, that, that takes it. I'm fascinated by musicians drawing from other disciplines for their processes, like the study of rhetoric, for instance, is a favorite of mine. In this music, which is so scripted in a way, do you think that there is a place for acting? And if so, what is it? It's a really interesting concept to think about. And my answer, I'm going to try to make it make sense because I'm going to say yes and no. Okay. I believe there is definitely a need to be inspired by other art forms in order to achieve our best performances. And I've never officially studied acting, but I do believe that having an understanding of drama and the narrative arc of a listener's experience is very important. I do believe that I'm trying to tell a story in a way with my violin. However, there's no acting involved for me. It's absolutely the fact that if I'm trying to convey an emotion with the music, I'm actually feeling that emotion. I'm not acting like I'm feeling it, I'm actually feeling it. And it may seem like a little fine point, a little niggling detail, but actually, for me, that difference is everything. That I am not just acting like I'm feeling, and you as well, when we perform together, we don't just act like we're super excited when the storm begins in the, in the summer concerto. We are actually feeling as though we are in a storm. And I think that that seemingly subtle difference is what makes live performance so electric. And I think it's one of the reasons we're all missing doing that act so much mm. right now. You're a disciple of C.P.E. Bach then, who said, musician cannot hope to move her listener unless she herself is moved. 
Yes. And then he goes on to say he must of necessity feel all of mm. the effects that he hopes to arouse in his audience. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not a simple job that we do. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, as someone whose creativity and inspiration is evident, do you feel like there's a line beyond which you won't go? Is there any license that can't be taken? Is there an approach that takes away the inherent drama in a violist either pretending to be a dog or believing he or she is a dog or a violin representing someone who's drunk? And then the question is, do you play a caricature of someone who's drunk or do you play believing that you're drunk and trying to play the violin as well as you can after all (laughs) drunks don't try to pretend they're drunk they try to pretend they're sober so i'm wondering in this very long-winded question if you consider that or do you just go for it and see what happens I think I do consider that there's some kind of line in terms of where I can inject my personality and my interpretation in in the music. I try to stay true to the basic template that Vivaldi gave me. By that, I mean I'm not going to change the notes he told me to play. I might add more to them because I know that it was okay to ornament in the day. I might add extra notes, and I'm not going to change the ones that are there And as well, I'm not going to change the basic tempo at which he asks me to play. Like, he doesn't give exact metronome markings, but he does say allegro. And he'll also say largo. So I'm not going to play a very slow allegro. I mean, and and I think some people do, frankly. And I, I try to draw the line at going against what Vivaldi put down the page. It's possible, you know, in terms of your question about Autumn, the third concerto, has a a scene where it depicts a party and there's a a drunkard who shows up at the party and is kind of slurring his words uh, and that's depicted through the violin solo part. And yeah, I guess I choose to play that as though I am drunk. You know, I pretend that I'm slurring my fingering, so to speak, on the violin and getting a little bit tipsy and, and playing as though I'm, as though I would, how I would play when I'm dizzy. But I still, even while I'm doing that, I distort things, but I don't actually play anything that's not indicated on the page. I don't change what's on the page. If anything, I might add, as I said, an ornament, a slur or a slide, but I don't disregard his instructions completely. So it's absolutely possible that I push it further than Vivaldi intended but with with the creativity and with the extreme effects that he already really clearly writes in the music, I would be surprised if he wasn't expecting people to take those liberties. Last question. H&H is going to be back, and when we are, I'm certain we will hear you play these four seasons. Is there anything you recommend our listeners look for when they come and hear you play? I guess, you know, if I was in the audience, I think it might be really entertaining to actually watch you and Ian Watson responding to me playing the solos passages throughout the concerto because, as I probably mentioned, there's a lot of improvisatory gestures and decisions that I will make in the moment. And it's on you guys in the continuous section. So the continuous section is all the bass instruments plus the keyboard. It's up to you to find me in a, in a split instant and basically supply me with a musical safety net. So I don't sort of fall off the violin and fall on my face. And I think I'm basically dancing around showing off, which is what music is for, and you and your continual team are protecting me from getting musically injured, so to speak. I think I would be wanting to watch how you guys are responding to me. I think that would be really interesting. We do what we can. We can't guarantee success, but we try. Boy, it's so appreciated. You have, you have no idea. <laughs> 
Aislinn, I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. Thanks so much, guys. Aislinn Noski is concertmaster of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. You can find previous episodes and supplementary materials, including program notes, biographies, scores for each of the four seasons, and even a copy of the first edition of the solo violin part, all on the Handel and Haydn Society website at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast. I hope you join me for the next episode. Thank you.